So today we are discussing The Molly Maguires, a 1970 film I had never heard of until we found it for our list here, but it stars Sean Connery and Richard Harris, two actors we are big fans of, uh, at least I know I am, I'm sure Logan is as well, and man, I'm dying to hear what you thought of this movie, just like in broad strokes. I really liked it. I really liked it a lot. It was, uh, I had never heard of it before. Right. Until you brought it up for this. But it was a really cool movie. It was like, you know, I'm 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 a big fan of the uh the like undercover cop movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like Departed, you know, Donnie Brasco, like I I love stuff like that. That like living a double life and, you know, trying to convince the the organization that you're infiltrating and then that whole dynamic where it's like Oh man, like I, I'm kind of like starting to like some of these guys. You're shifting loyalty, yeah, that, right? Exactly. I don't know. I think that's some of the coolest character dynamics. Is that kind of leads to that? that those kind of character dynamics lead to some really cool performances, where it's like you, the way that they have to act. You know, they're like acting in two layers because it's like they're oh, right. acting as their character, but then their character is also acting as somebody else. No, so. I really enjoyed it as well, but it actually left me, I hate to say disappointed because I did really like it, but I was disappointed because this movie could have been so good. Like this could have been like the best movie of the seventies. Like this has so much potential. It really is like the departed meets uh Peaky blinders or something like that. And yeah, so I just felt like in the opening scene with the, the, all the, the, the sabotaging of the mind to no dialogue, so, and then, like, Sean Connery, I think I wrote down, Sean Connery doesn't talk until, like, 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Well, that opening sequence is, like, 15 minutes long. No, right. With no dialogue at all from anybody. Right. The the first line of the movie was 15 minutes in, and then Sean Connery doesn't talk till 40 minutes in. I kind of made it yeah. up. But after that, I just felt like, and this is normal for, you know, the, the pre-Steven Spielberg, George Lucas movies, where it's just a little slower pace. But I, I feel like I wanted more. There wasn't enough, maybe, character development for me or enough tension kind of past that opening part it was so it was really really good but i was almost just like oh this is gonna have been so much better with just a few tweaks and actually what i want to see because this is so little known even though it's got the star power we'd never heard of it and never heard of the actual events or anything around this but this would be the perfect story for a six episode limited hbo series see that's I was thinking the same thing because, like, it would be so conducive to that because of the way that you you want to have that slow buildup. Yes. And because in, it, like, we'll talk about, in real life, the guy spent two and a half years undercover. Right. And the movie doesn't make it feel like that. Right. Right. And then there's also that whole, like, in the movie, like, you get, you know, you have all the undercover stuff, and that's, like, 95% of the movie and then the trial is literally like seven minutes at the end of the movie. If that is like it's like the closing credits essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then and then they don't even like they just kind of like insinuate then the execution, which is like, you know, the big historical day, like Black Thursday. Like they don't even show that. But it's like they, they have all this like build up, build up, build up slow bird, and then it's like all of a sudden it's like you're watching the movie on fast forward, because it's literally like they have him come out for his testimony and then it's like there's a cut and then the verdict is read and then there's a cut and then it's like and then that's the end of the movie basically there's that last scene with them in the jail jail cell which was good too there them in the jail cell that scene was actually really really good just oh yeah 
so much weight to it and what each guy was thinking. And then you just keep waiting for, oh man, is Sean Connery's character going to snap? Oh, maybe he's just cool. Oh, nope, there's a snap. Nice. Yep. Like, you, yeah. You kind of wanted it. Oh, it just, yeah. and how they're talking about, are, did you come for absolution? Like, it's, this is a very cool movie that could be one of the coolest IPs ever if it was kind of packaged correctly, I feel like. Yeah. And so I feel like it kind of just is uh, under-recognized. 100%. Especially, I feel like it'd be a good a good time for it, like for that societal message too. Because especially within the last couple years, well, in the last few years in general, but especially since COVID, the organized labor movement, mm. um, especially in the United States, has gotten, I feel like, a lot more traction and media attention. I feel like you're hearing a lot more about, because there's, you know, like the Starbucks unions, uh, Amazon unions. Right. So like, you know, working conditions and, you know, livable wage and, you know, organized labor movements in general, I feel like are kind of more in the zeitgeist now than they have been in a long time. And so I feel like for this movie or for this story to kind of be told again or for people to see it, I, I think there would be a lot of emotional connection there. Right, yeah, it's 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 yet again. It's like they just need to put us in part part of some of these projects. If, if we yeah. were the showrunners for a new yeah. Molly Maguire six episode run <laughs> on HBO, man, that would be fun. Oh, who would, again? You love your casting stuff. Who who would we cast? And <laughs> I know we didn't plan this. Oh man, but actually, who would you? Just the two. Let's just go the Sean Connery uh, character and the Richard Harris character. Who we would recast today? Because you want that again. It's you know, it's hard not to go departed and just think like immediately to like a Leo and putting him in one of these roles. But maybe like a McConaughey as as the Sean Sean Connery. No, role. I, I would want someone actually Irish. Oh, get like the Gleasons or something. Uh, Brendan Gleason would be definitely one of the characters, but he wouldn't be like the Brid, uh, no no no. Uh, but maybe maybe a Donald Gleason or uh, well Donald Gleason's not. He doesn't really strike me as like a he's not rough coal enough. miner guy. Jamie Dornan maybe could. Okay, yeah, yeah. Or I was even thinking. Just make it the cast of Banshees of Inner Sheeran and just translate them all over to oh yeah because Pennsylvania because Jamie Jamie Dornan might actually be too young or at least or appear to be too young right but yeah maybe like a uh, Barry Keegan Barry Keegan would be good a little young but again yeah. he's maybe too young Colin Farrell again I might go Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson with Colin yeah. Farrell as the Richard Harris role and Brendan Gleeson as the Sean Connery role yeah and then imagine like having like a, a have a Liam Neeson as the uh, as the old cop guy. Oh, there the we go. Irish and we cop. Mar- and we get Martin McDonough directing it. Yeah. Oh, oh, I like it. I like it. Greenlit. Or Martin McDonough or um, Kenneth Branagh. Oh, yes. Yes. I don't think of him as like the gritty as much as, as, much as uh, McDonough. But yeah, I. Uh, yeah. That would be fun. That'd be fun. Anyway, yeah. So this film was set in 1870s Pennsylvania coal mines. So it was just kind of the perfect spot. We didn't really talked about. Actually, I didn't do a deep dive on, I guess, life of the Pennsylvania coal industry because I didn't feel like there was too much other stuff to talk about here today. So our, yeah, our our homework assignments is uh, Logan's going to talk about the Molly Maguires. I'm going to talk about James McParland, who's the Richard Harris character. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to talk about the Pinkerton Agency and the Pinkertons in general. So I was not super familiar with the the Pinkertons at all. They, they're referenced constantly in this movie. I had first heard of them in the show Deadwood. Mm. In the later seasons, the later part of Deadwood, there's a lot of Pinkerton agents that show up in Deadwood. And 
I didn't research them while watching that show. And so I got the vibe that it was like this almost like crime syndicate family from out east that had political or financial interests in what was going on in Deadwood. And but that's that's not the case. And and so I don't know if they if that show was misrepresenting them or if it was more just like I was making the wrong assumptions. So the Pinkerton Agency uh, was founded in 1850 and still exists today. You can still yep. hire the Pinkerton agency. Yep. agency. Yeah, so I'm like, wait, what? So there's one, Alan Pinkerton was uh, Scottish-born, moved to Illinois, and kind of just stumbled into uh, detective work, just kind of just in local things that came up around where he was living in Illinois. Just He ended up being the guy that like turned these guys in or figured out what was going on here. He just kind of had a knack for detective work. Uh, he ends up being the first ever police detective in the city of Chicago, uh, and then founds his own private detective agency. And it kind of just got to where all of his men he hired were called the Pinkertons. So it was just like, it's, he's Alan Pinkerton, and then his whole group and agency became the Pinkertons and the Pinkerton Agency, mostly hired by the railroad for like private security or then any detective work that comes up along the railroad. Um, it's so successful, they opened up shop in New York City and Philadelphia as well. And so if you're in Western Pennsylvania and you're having the railroad and the coal industry obviously very tied together. So if you have a railroad slash coal interest in Western Pennsylvania and you have this group that is undermining uh, your activities, whether it's just standard unit activities or actually they're doing a little bit of terrorism and murder uh, here as well, it makes sense that you want you would hire the Pinkertons to get to the bottom of what was going on. And then just to kind of follow the Pinkerton agency itself past the events of the film here, or, or well, both, both before and after. So we mentioned that when uh, Lincoln got elected, they had to like smuggle him in. He went to D.C. in disguise and there was, you know, already threats against his life and stuff. It was the Pinkertons who discovered these plots and suggested the disguise plan in the first place. So like the Pinkertons were almost even kind of a de facto secret service in the early days of uh, Lincoln's presidency during the Civil War. They would have Pinkerton agents as like moles in the Confederacy, much like we see Richard Karras' character do here today. Alan Pinkerton and Lincoln knew each other pretty well. Um, and there's also a 2014 movie I'd never heard called The Pinkertons that has just kind of middling reviews, but still. They made a, few, a full branch of their, of their agency for female detectives. They had African-American detectives, again, all in the late 1800s. And then in the early 1900s, uh, Raymond Chandler, the author, coined the term private eye, and some people believe it's a reference to the Pinkerton Agency logo, which mm. is a, like a big, like a drawing of an eye that says, like, we never sleep. Oh, I thought private eye was, it's like private investigator, and then the EYE is just because that sounds like I, the letter... But that makes sense, though, that they, that, that connection would be even... But I think it's both. I think it's both. Right? Yeah, I think it even is, closer. It is, that, it is that, but also it's believed he kind of then made that connection, yeah. not just because of the letter I, but because of the Pinkerton I. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so after the Civil War, uh, they were big with kind of always getting called out West. You think about all the railroad interests out there. It was the Pinkertons that were always getting called out to help out West. When Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in real life kind of get booted out and forced to flee the U.S., it was kind of the Pinkertons that forced them out of the country. I think that's that's the context that I most think of the Pinkertons in is okay. is in that context of like the Old West. 
Like that's okay. you know right the Deadwood type stuff yeah yeah the cowboy cowboy stuff Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid stuff like that's that's what what I think of Pinkertons that's what I think of yeah by the uh, by the eighteen nineties which again is well past our our film here today I'm just kind of talking about the agency if you count like the agents they had in reserve so there's like the active agents and there's the basically the agents that are ready to be called up if a job or whatever but if you count all their reserves the Pinkertons outnumbered the U.S. Army. At the time, in the 1890s, <laughs> there was uh, by 1906 they had 20 agencies, and then this. And again, I, I didn't look at the exact timeline of the of creation of the FBI or CIA, but essentially the FBI and CIA were almost like the federal response to, hey, instead of us hiring out the Pinkertons for every little thing, why don't we just create our own government-controlled thing that is basically what the Pinkertons do? So the Pinkertons didn't become the FBI or CIA, CIA, but the FBI and CAA are basically established to do what the Pinkertons were doing, and Pinkertons were doing in the private sector, just to have a, a public branch of that kind of same work with the spying and the policing and all that kind of stuff. So hmm. they basically inspired the creation of those uh, governmental bodies, and yeah, it still exists today, but it's just kind of owned by it's a branch of some larger Swedish corporation. But you can go to the Pinkerton website today and hire them if you are kind of if you can afford them. So. I thought that was really interesting because I just, I don't know, not on my radar, I saw Deadwood. And I, and I don't remember, I've only seen Butch Cassidy as a Sundance kid, I think, all the way through once. So do they mention the Pinkertons by name in that show? Or is it more just like, these are the people that come in and we don't really know? I don't remember. It's been so long okay. since I've seen okay. it. Even, same, same. I, I think we are getting ready to watch it, though. No, I think it's coming up on our timeline. soon yeah. coming up. But yeah, it's it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't, I don't remember if they, yeah. they mentioned them by name. but Just kind of crazy that... I hadn't heard of them until watching the show Deadwood, and it seems like they're actually super important and have been around for literally, you know, over 150 years. So yeah, just kind of crazy. And they, I, I was just I was looking at their uh, their Wikipedia page real fast while you were talking about mm. them. They had the like they were doing kind of this similar to what we see in this movie, looking at uh, anti union stuff. But like in 2020, there was like Amazon and Starbucks both got caught having Pinkerton hired guys oh, okay. doing like union busting stuff for them. Right. This is the exact same stuff that would have been done 150 years ago. So that's that, crazy. that makes that makes me think that maybe we should think about instead of a direct retelling of this movie in our upcoming six part HBO oh. miniseries, we should translate it to the modern day and have them be like they could be like Amazon workers or something. No man, I want I want the coal mine. Okay, uh, you want it to be in a coal mine in the 1870s. I want the I want the grit and the murder of the coal mine and the yeah. I, unless you're gonna do something like extra layered, where it's like two timelines going back and forth, and you almost have like the same show is like going back and forth between an 1870s you know Molly Maguire story and then a modern. That would be hard to pull off. It'd be very hard to pull <laughs> off from the tone, but. uh Kenneth Branagh directs the modern part, and Martin McDonough directs the old school part. Yeah, it, and it would be it would be a little bit difficult. Yeah, tonally, because I've, that'd be a that'd be a real whiplash as far as going from like, oh yeah, these guys are worried that they're gonna like you know get their head cut off and get cancer in the coal mine, and so they're gonna like beat the shit out of this mine foreman yeah, or like blow true. up a railway, and then it's like, and then it's like you go to the Amazon guys, and it's like. And it's like I don't want to pee in a cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, not to belittle any uh, issues that Amazon employees have. No, right. Because like right. that that is fucked up, and they absolutely deserve better working conditions. But 
it's just a it's a different it's just a different thing. It's, it'd be a different thing tonally for the movie. But uh, maybe maybe your uh, common thread though could be you make James McParland an immortal, and he's actually <laughs> in, in, in both. <laughs> And we just make it like sci-fi. <laughs> and he could be and he could be played by an AI recreation of Richard Harris. Boom. So he could be he could like be actually just Richard Harris. He wouldn't actually have to hire a different actor. Man, the other thing, this movie this movie really, really made me want to go watch more Richard Harris stuff. Because like my introduction to Richard Harris was Gladiator, and then he follows up Gladiator with being Dumbledore in a couple of movies. Like Yeah. And and then you go back and you realize, oh, okay, he is also at the beginning of Unforgiven or whatever. But like outside of that, I don't know if I've even seen a Richard Harris movie. Yeah, be- because because my the only exposure that I had ever had to Richard Harris was Count of Monte Cristo, Gladiator, right. Unforgiven, Harry Potter. Because and in those movies, he's so old. Right. When I if I watched this movie and didn't know that that was Richard Harris, I don't think I would have recognized him. To be honest, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like even when he comes on screen, I was like, "Is this Richard Harris?" And I was just trying to see if I could see. Marcus Aurelius or Dumbledore, or Dumbledore in his eyes, kind of thing, and and you and you finally got to where like okay, I can see it, but you couldn't really hear it. But again, it's this is nineteen seventy, yeah. like this right. is thirty years before Gladiator. Well, because in in the in the movies he's in, you know that I've seen, yes. he always has this kind of like old man horse kind of voice, and so and right. it's like and it's gone. completely different. Right, it's not there yet, and uh, yeah. Anyway, so then I start looking through his like his IMDb page, and like he's got a lot of like highly rated movies i've never heard of that are probably pretty cool because richard harris is kind of this star right yeah and then the other one here's another connection for us though too and i I think i texted you off air about this that richard harris's son in real life jared harris he's in the crown he's he's birdie he's uh queen elizabeth's dad in the crown is jared harris who's hold up richard Jared harris is richard harris's son yes Oh my god! I dude, I love Jared Harris. Yeah, I yeah. see him in so much stuff, and I think he's criminally underrated. Absolutely, and he gets a ton of he gets a ton of work, but I never knew that he was related. He's in Lincoln. He plays. He's uh. He's Grant in Lincoln, right? Yeah, he's in. He's yeah. in Lincoln. He's in Chernobyl. He's in uh the Expanse. Have you ever seen the Expanse? I'm pretty sure. Isn't yes. he the voice of Bruce the Shark in Finding Nemo? Is he really? I think he is. Hang on, I'm gonna go to his IMDb page because he's he's pretty ubiquitous as an actor. Like he's in a ton of stuff. He's he's the uh, the skeezy tabloid guy in Mr. Deeds. He's like he's in everything, man. Oh right, he doesn't seem to have an ego about taking like these silly things, but then also having these. He's also has his his he has his dad's gravitas. Right, he has legit acting chops, but he'll right. he'll be in the dumb screwball comedy movie. Right, right. And as a chameleon, and like you, you, you can't even tell where he's from. Like you only know he's yeah. British because he's Mr. Harris's son. <laughs> right. Okay. He was not Bruce the Shark in uh, in Finding Nemo. Oh. I don't know why I thought that, but he is in he is in a ton of other movies, like a ton <laughs> of other movies. So I I would I would bet that like for listener, I, I guarantee you've seen a movie with him in it. Oh right, he's hard to avoid. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, uh, Jared Harris is not in this film, but his dad is, and I want to watch more of his dad's films. So, back to the history side of things here. (laughs) Yes, Western Pennsylvania, 1870s, real-life situation here where an actual Pinkerton agent named James McParland goes undercover for, like Logan said, two and a half years to infiltrate the Molly Maguire organization because 
as far as the railroad was concerned, they were concerned about the pro-union side of things and, you know, that they didn't want to have to improve the working conditions. But also there's uh, extensive criminal activity. So, Logan, give us the rundown of the Molly Maguires and how they relate to all this. Yeah, so the origins of the Molly Maguires go back uh, a really long way, actually. Um, So they go back to Ireland and all the way back in the 1500s. Mm. So there was a British law that forbade Irish from owning any land. So from from the 1500s onward, the Irish were only tenant farmers. They couldn't actually own their farms. Even in Ireland, they can't own Irish can't own Irish land. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Because this this was under the time where this was at the time where Ireland was all of Ireland was fully under British rule. Right. So Irish people in Ireland could not own land, and so they were tenant farmers for landlords that were English or. Welsh or Scottish. So there started to be these organizations of Irish tenant farmers that started to fight back against, you know, oppression, uh, unfair evictions, bad working conditions, low pay, all that stuff. And there was a few different organizations. Um, one that I saw was called the Ribbon Men, and they were kind of in the early 1800s. Um, in the mid 1700s, there was a group called the White Boys. And not not white because their skin was white because, you know, these are all... Everyone's was there, yeah. They were called white boys because they would dress... Whenever they would do their their raids or their attacks or whatever, they would dress up in women's clothing and they would put on makeup, like paint their faces all white. Hmm. And so they, would, they were called the white boys. There was also a, a group that was called the Molly Maguire. So there were, there were several of these different kind of like secret societies and not... Not even really secret societies, just like groups of people that were either beating up or assassinating their overlords, or even just threatening them to fight back against you know what they saw as as oppression. And so legend says that the Molly Maguires got their name from an old widow woman named Molly Maguire who was being evicted from her cottage, and she didn't want to leave and refused to leave and said, I'm just going to, I'm staying in here. You can't make me leave. And so they demolished the, her British landlord, demolished the cottage with her inside of it. And then the group from that area called themselves the Molly Maguires. Now, that is probably just a legend, but that kind of thing happened all the time for gotcha. hundreds of years. That's a good origin, though. I like that. I like that. I mean, I don't like that that happened, but you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a good place to get a name. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or a good story. So... That sentiment and those cultural memories then came over with all of the Irish immigrants that immigrated to the United States after the Great Potato Famine started in 1845. So the Great Potato Famine, we kind of talked about it before, killed nearly a million Irish, and it caused a massive influx of Irish immigrants to the United States. And most of those immigrants are unskilled labor, uneducated and so that leads to then a, oh, and Catholic, and that leads to then a lot of racial and religious discrimination against them when they get to the United States. Because the United States, as a young country still, they're still very close to those Puritan roots, they're very close to those you know Protestant roots, and that's where we get the term WASP, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, that was kind of the ruling class. So that was the the haves of America were all these wasps. And so they had a very strong dislike of Irish people. They thought that they were less than they thought, you know, you know, thought they were dirty or whatever. 
and they didn't like that they were Catholic. And so when they when they get over here, they're discriminated against, and they can't get any jobs. And the jobs that they can get, a lot of them are the jobs that no one else wants. And one of those jobs is in the coal mines because it's a very it's a very dangerous job. The working conditions are terrible. You know, you breathing in coal dust all day. Like being a coal miner today is a rough life. Being a coal miner <laughs> in the 18th and 19th century was, you know, damn near a death sentence. Wow, you're right. Yeah, so a, a lot of these mines were get, were hiring a lot of um, Irish settlers in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is where the movie takes place. Working conditions are terrible, and the entire town is basically one big scam. So, like, the workers come in, they, they go down to the mine, and we actually see a scene about this in the movie, but they go yes. down to the mine, they, they earn their money, but then it's like, oh, we're taking money for your food, we're taking money for your tools, we're taking money for this and that. And, like, in the movie, you know, it's like, he gets like his wages for the week is like nine dollars and change, and by the end of all the deductions, he has like twenty something cents. Right, and he owes his landlord like a buck a week, kind of thing. Right, it's like uh, yeah, yeah. And and it's like the the comp the mining company they own the house, they own the the company store, like they own. You don't actually own any of your tools. That's all you know. Rented. I'm putting that in air quotes. Rented to you for a fee, of course. So it's like. Yeah, basically, you're working for nothing. And sometimes you're actually working for negative money. So there were some times where like you would work for a week. And at the end of the week, you would owe the mining company money, even though you just worked 80 hours in a coal mine for the whole week. Right. This is some John Steinbeck stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. And again, this is the 1860s. So there's no there's no weekend. There's no federally mandated 40 hour work week. You don't get any sick days, like, right, it's right. seven days a week in the coal mine. Right, and basically all you have is going to the bar after, and then right back to it the next day. Yep. Right. And kind of to add insult to injury, so there did exist higher paying jobs in the coal mine. So there were like two different, at least two different levels of miners. One was like a miner that would get paid by how much they would blast out and so that that was actually a pretty high paying job but no irish would get hired for those jobs those were all mm. like english and welsh guys would get those jobs the irish guys were only hired for the lower paying job of basically you just follow those guys shovel their whatever they blast out shovel it into buckets and then you get paid by the day and that's a really low paying job and that's what all the irish got so they were facing you know discrimination from the English and the Welsh in their home country for hundreds mm, of years, right. they come to America hope for, hoping for a better life, and it's, and it's just right thing. back to the same thing. Exactly. Huh. So tensions came to a head during the Civil War, like we saw in Gangs of New York. Right. Because in addition to all of that, now there's a draft. And not only did the Irish not want to fight a war that they didn't really have any stake in, most of the Irish immigrants didn't want slavery to be abolished at all because they were worried that that was going to be an influx of more unskilled and uneducated laborers. Mm. And so they were worried about labor competition with freed black slaves coming north. So not only did they not believe in the cause and they didn't want to fight the war, to add to all of that, the rich guys, they could just pay to not have to be drafted. They could pay their three hundred dollars, but for the for the Irish guy that's making twenty five cents a week, 
he can't pay three hundred dollars. Right. Right. So there actually ended up being, you know, then a lot of Irish uh, immigrants would get drafted on both sides, actually. But, you know, specifically in the north, because that was where you know a lot of the immigrants would come through, come through New York. So, yeah, that's how you end up with a lot of uh, a lot of Irish soldiers in the Civil War. This kind of started to then beget violence. So they started fighting back and there were a few different organizations. And actually, while there is historical evidence for the Molly Maguires in Ireland, it's not really clear how much of that actually made it to the United States. And when we talk about the guys that got arrested, it's not clear necessarily if they were just calling themselves Molly Maguires, if there was actually a a legit organization. Oh, uh, okay. Or if it was just like, hey, this guy, like, you know, said, like, he does, a, you know, like, kills a union or kills a, a, a mine boss or whatever, or, or is charged with killing a mine boss and, like, he said one time, like, oh, yeah, you know, we got to be like the Molly Maguires. And so that means that he's a, mem- a member of the Molly Maguire. Like, there's card-carrying members. We've talked about this a bunch of times with a lot right. of different organizations where it's like you can, the government, or in this case, like the mine companies or the railroad companies, they would just label someone a member of the Molly Maguires because they were an Irish guy that they didn't like. Right. And it's easier to put them in a group. Yeah. Right. So how much of that is actually true is kind of a subject of historical debate. But there were other there were other organizations that were largely populated by Irish mine workers. So like you have the Working Men's Benevolent Association or the WBA, which was just a union. They didn't have anything to do with violence. They were just a like a mine, an Irish miners union. And then there was and they actually mentioned this one in the movie, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, which is a again, some some historians say, oh, this was a it was an actual organization, but some say, oh, yeah, the, the Molly Maguires existed as a subset of that and would use that legit organization as a front for their criminal activity. But right. others say, no, that's just like a kind of like a fraternal order. It's like a self-help society. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only reason that there's overlap there with the quote unquote Molly Maguires is because it just hap- it, it's an organization for Irish guys. And so, yeah, they're all going to be all these Molly Maguires that are arrested and executed were all, you know, members of this ancient order of Hibernians because they're all Irish guys. <laughs> right. So where where those Venn diagrams actually overlap is not really clear, but that's kind of the the situation in, in uh, Northeast Pennsylvania in the 1870s. So threats started to be made against mining supervisors and scabs. So they would strike, these miners would strike, and then it's for any listeners who don't know, a scab is like a worker that is brought in by the company to do your job if you're striking, that person is called a scab. And so... Or anyone who breaks the picket line of their own accord. Yeah, yeah. That too, that too. So threats started to be made against supervisors and scabs. And over the course of the 1870s, there were 24 mine foremen that were killed. Huh. Yeah. So, and a lot of these, it's like, they ended up getting pinned on... Irish guys, but it's not even necessarily clear that that was how they were murdered. So, for instance, John Kehoe, who we see in the movie, John Blackjack Kehoe, Sean Connery's character, he was a real guy. There was a mine foreman in the 1860s who was urging support for the draft and got in a very big public argument with a group of Irish mine workers, one of whom was John Kehoe. Now, 
John Kehoe was educated, so he could read, he could do math, and so he was a big part of organizing other Irish workers against their working conditions, and he would even do stuff like he would go through all their pay slips at the end of the week and like do the math and make sure that they weren't getting cheated and would say like, oh, hey, see this there. They took five dollars from you on Tuesday, you know, because they said, you know, this happened. But that's 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 not true. Like that's that's fraud or that's, you know, that's a scam. So he would like audit it and then have them go complain or, you know, oh, you know, they're charging you for, you know, two weeks worth of shovel use and you actually will use it for one. So go go get that money back. So he was in the eyes of the mining company, he's like a rabble rouser. He's like, you know, he's bad news. So because he was in this group that was arguing with his mine foreman over the draft, he was then blamed, years later, he was blamed for the murder of that foreman because that foreman ended up getting beaten up and died a couple days later and never said who did it. There was no evidence for against anyone, but they pinned it on John Kehoe. Because they wanted to get rid of him, right? Because they wanted to get rid of him. So, because of all this, all these, this violence, all these mine foremen getting killed, the head of the Reading Railroad, named Franklin Gowan, hired Pinkerton Detective, or hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who then hired James McKenna, aka James McParlin, to go on the case and go undercover and try and infiltrate this organization of the Molly Maguires. Um, that led to the arrest of 20 guys by the coal and iron police. So like we talked about, the Pinkerton Detective Agency is this huge private detective agency. It's a private company that's doing law enforcement. The coal and iron police is the same thing, but it's it's basically police force that is literally owned by a group of mining companies. So they have their own police force that has arrest powers. They have, you know, they're armed it's like armed enforcers who have the force of the law behind them that are owned by the mining and the railroad companies. And it's not too dissimilar from, you know, you got you even have cops that'll uh, uh, moonlight as security for private, you know, a private security thing. So it's just a private security force. But you're right. The arrest powers is, is a step maybe on what you usually see today. Right. But the like working as an off-duty cop, you don't have the... I mean, you have the arrest powers when you're working off duty, but you only have them because you're a because you're a cop already. You can't just get a you can't you don't work for like a private security company. It's not like, you know, the bank security guard. You would have to call the cops to take someone in. Right. Right. right, Yeah. Back back then, you could just kind of like I'm arresting this person and you take them into the jail, even if you're not an official cop or whatever, a government cop. Yeah. So I, I don't know. That's just like and that's not really something that is around anymore these like private police forces but back in the day that was like a a a pretty a pretty common thing and also i i thought this was kind of interesting so franklin gowan who's the the guy who hired the pinkerton detective agency he's he's a a railroad owner right he was also then the prosecutor on like most of the cases that seems uh inappropriate (laughs) right yeah so it's like that that seems like a conflict of interest doesn't it So uh, McParlin's testimony led to uh, 20 convictions, and it was pretty much his testimony was the only evidence that was brought against these guys at trial. But he had a pretty extensive paper trail from years of, like, he. it's not like, I don't know, yes, it was his word, but like, 
over the course of a year, and he told us this on this day and this on this. Like there was a lot, right, there. right. Yeah. But I'm saying it's not like they had a. It's like there's no physical evidence or anything. It's not like they, you know, or even other witnesses really. It wasn't like in the movie where they kind of get them caught red-handed at the end. There was nothing like that. No, because it, it was just like with John Kehoe, the guy was beat up after arguing with the whole group of people, but there oh, was right. no okay, evidence yeah, connecting yeah. that murder to any any single person. But because gotcha. he was part of the group that was arguing, they said, oh, well, that's the evidence, is that you were arguing. Oh, so before- in real life, they, real life, they got him on way less than they get him on in the movie kind of thing. Right. Huh. So... That leads to 20 convictions and executions, including 10 on the same day, which was June 21st, 1877, and that's called Black Thursday, that they hung, or hanged, excuse me, they hanged <laughs> 10 guys on the same day. Which the movie makes it look like three or something. Like, the movie doesn't really highlight how many were right. uh, executed. Over the course of these trials, it was 20 guys. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Which, again, for a movie would be maybe too many. But for a six-part HBO series, right. you could totally introduce them all. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So today, uh, this is kind of rightly recognized by legal scholars and historians as a massive abuse of the criminal justice system. And actually, John Blackjack Kehoe was posthumously granted a full pardon oh, okay. by the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Milton, Sh- Milton Schapp, in uh, 1979. So what's interesting is the the film paints him as he's guilty. Like in the film, he's killing these people. He's he's blowing up these this mine. Like he's basically a terrorist in the film. You're saying that, and he might have been. And okay, we just don't know. And that stuff and that stuff was happening. Gotcha. So it's like it's not impossible to think that he was. Like there were Irish mine workers that were blowing up mines and you know killing mine foremen. Like that stuff was happening. But it wasn't necessarily under his direction or him himself, right? But it could have been. Yeah, and and it's also like, you know, it's not like they're not doing it. For, it's not like they're doing it for no reason. Like, and this is this kind of goes to, we've, we've, uh, we've talked about this many times when we talk about any kind of, like, insurgency or, like, you know, quote-unquote terrorist oh, organization. Right. Like, we talked about it when we did, when we talked about... Battle of Algiers or whatever. Like, the, yeah. when the Sheikhs, when the Sheikhs Barley, Battle of Algiers... Uh, we were talking about uh, the what was the uh, Palestinian suicide bomber movie? Paradise Law, Paradise Now, Paradise Now. Like you know, freedom fighter and terrorist are labels for the same person. It just depends on what side you're on or what ideologies you agree with. So, like, were these guys terrorists? I don't know. Maybe like if you're if you're a mine owner, you probably think so. But at the same time, like these guys' working conditions sucked, and like they were being racially discriminated against and having all their wages taken away like they were essentially slaves right, right. it's like what right. right what what else what else are they what else are they supposed to do like are we are we going to call are we going to call slaves terrorists for like revolting against their against their owners like and keep in mind too so this is like this is in the 1870s so in 1873 there was basically the great depression which the only reason we don't call that one the great depression is because the great depression of the 1930s happened. Um, now we call that one, it's called the Great Panic of 1873. And it was like this massive economic collapse that happened after the, you know, because it's like the end of the Civil War. And so these mine workers are like, they're suffering. It was something like, I saw a statistic, like 
only like 20% of men in this area would have had a full-time job. Like it's basically they're just they're like everyone's just working wherever they can scrape and buy and they're being exploited because there's still these like rich railroad owners and mine owners who are making tons of money even though the economy is terrible right because you know what's what's like the one thing that you need to run an economy in 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 the 1870s you need the railroad and you need coal so it's like that stuff's not going away and so these dudes are making money hand over fist but they won't they won't hire anybody or you know if they do they won't pay them a fair wage so it's like on top of everything it's like this is all going on during this massive economic depression as well right because on the surface you would just say well hey just what what else can you do? You can quit that job, and then you're like, "There's literally literally no other job. It's right. you do this or yeah. I guess hey, better to make zero than to make negative. But well, yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard enough to find a job as an Irish guy anyway, right? And so it's like, yeah, like you can't. No one can find a job, right? Let alone an Irish guy, right? Any let alone anywhere else other than coal country, right? So that quarter a week is better than zero a week, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It is one of those things where it's like, maybe the terrorist label is appropriate, but like, I, I think like, yeah, terrorist, but like, in a good way. <laughs> like, it's, well, I was thinking, again, this is, this is dark, but I think there's a Chris Rock joke where basically he's talking about OJ and he kind of goes into detail about like ex-wife, you know, still living off or living in the house that he owns and seeing her boyfriend there. And he's like, is never okay to murder someone. He's like, but I understand. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so oh, so I didn't realize until like last night that Jack Kehoe was real because I think we relied too much on the Wikipedia hyperlinks, and the only person who's hyperlinked is James McParland. But like, this is just so on the edge of no one's heard of this movie. No one's just gotten around to making the Wikipedia page for Jack Kehoe. I found a bunch of articles yeah, and, that are all you could all link, and we could write the page for him, and it just hadn't been done yet. Right? Yeah. It's a, but there, and there isn't really outside of this. It's one of those things where, like, outside of this, there's like no, nothing is really known about him. No, right. But the fact that he's a Sean Connery character is usually enough to get a Wikipedia right. page. And if that movie came out today, yeah. that Wikipedia page would exist. But it just no one's gotten around to writing it. A hundred percent. Yeah. So so after these deaths, then did that again? Like you said they weren't necessarily using this label at that time. It was might might have been something more that was put on them. But did uh, what was the fallout? I guess did the labor unrest kind of settle down because these guys were executed, or do you have much kind of follow up beyond that, or just kind of it dies with Kehoe here? I I mean I kind of only looked at it in the context of this of this movie, but now, uh, hang on, let me see if I can just like do a do a browse real quick. So it says, uh, two years later, so in 1879, there was a guy named Terrence Powderly who was elected as the mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he was, like, heavily backed by the organized labor movement. So Mm. his opposition labeled him the Molly Maguire ticket, even though, like, again, because he was backed by organized labor, they're trying to paint the politicians that were more sympathetic to the mining companies and the railroad companies would have tried to paint all organized labor with the brush of, you know, violent radicals. Whereas like the vast majority of them were just like, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to kill anybody. I just 
want a paycheck, please, at the end of every week. Like, and, you know, not to have to work 90 hours and then end up owing someone else money. Um, and then it just talks about the the pardon. It says the request for the pardon of Kehoe was made by one of his descendants. Kehoe did maintain his innocence until his death. And the pardon board said that the trial uh, and the circumstances surrounding it, like, definitely warranted a a pardon. And the governor actually, like, praised the Molly Maguires when he pardoned Kehoe and said that they were martyrs to labor hmm. and heroes in the struggle to establish a union and fair treatment for workers. No, I think we forget. If anything, it's almost maybe encouraging that you we forget that Oh, the uh, violent political rhetoric has always kind of been a thing. So, you know, today the equivalent of saying like, oh, this candidate's just a Antifa thug that wants to get rid of police and blah, blah, blah. All those kinds of things you hear today. Yeah, they were saying those things 150 years ago about their political rivals then too. They're like, oh, this guy's, he's just a Molly McGuire thug. It's like, no, just like you So it's, there's not necessarily anything new under the sun, as they say, right? That it's... uh Right. Yeah. It's the same... Same attacks, you just, you know, change the name of the violent extremist organization. And not even in America either. Like this this stuff right. all over the world. It's like, oh yeah, if you wanna if you wanna try and, you know, try and dissuade people from voting for somebody, just label them as whatever organization in your area is most associated with violent extremism. Right. Right. For right or for wrong. And yeah, it's all just it's all just politics. So I won't, okay, I'm going to talk about James McFarlane here, and we're, we're kind of approaching the one hour mark. So I won't necessarily do a deep, deep dive here, because, and I do think this is a guy who will be a candidate for most interesting person in American history when we get down to our, our tournament down the line. Um, so I'll try to be relatively brief instead of doing a full thing here. So uh, yeah, he was born in Ireland in 1844, uh, moved to the U.S. when he was 23, just kind of worked various, you know, jobs as a as a laborer, uh, cop, liquor store owner. And what's interesting is his liquor store was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And so it was after that that he ended, ends up hired uh, as a detective slash spy for the Pinkerton Agency. So just five years before uh, the events of the film here. And he was kind of a perfect candidate to infiltrate the Molly Maguires because he was himself this rough and tumble Irishman. So he had kind of made the background. He was, you know, not a wasp. He was very much a Irish Catholic immigrant, just like uh, a lot of these other guys uh, that he was going to be working amongst, amongst to convince he was one of them. Um, so yeah, he's hired by the Pinkertons, who were in turn hired by the president of the railroad company you mentioned, Frank uh, Franklin McGowan. So yeah, the movie kind of does tweak the details, though, of, of course. He was providing the authorities with constant updates um a scene in the film that is actually real was when again they don't say who it is it's basically like the local cops is what it looks like they break in and like shoot up the room and kill the guy's wife yeah that happened i don't think i think they took her outside and killed her but yeah they killed one of the wives of one of the guys like that really happened and uh in real life uh mcparland was super pissed about it you know like that's not what i signed up for he had to be talked out of resigning from this whole thing over the incident and but yeah, like you said, just kind of reached the point where they had enough evidence, even if it was all just McParland's testimony to get the arrests and the convention, uh, convictions. But yeah, so the incident gained McParland international recognition. Like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote McParland into one of the Sherlock Holmes' stories. Like I think it's Valley of Fear. McParland is a character. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. 
he was just became a lifelong Pinkerton agent detective guy. So 10 years later, he's undercover in Parsons, Kansas, infiltrating a railroad strike there. And then he, he kind of gets rolled into, because he's always on the side of these anti-labor companies, that's just who's hiring him. As interesting as all the things McParlin was along for, you don't really get a lot of insight as to what he felt. It almost, to me, it may just because I'm seeing the Richard Harris, Harris character in the film, it just feels like I'm just doing a job, man. Like, yeah, he did almost like is, is politically neutral. They're just the ones signing his paycheck. Right. So when he's, yeah. but so he's always on the side of these anti labor forces because he's hired by the companies. But then he also get, then he gets painted by the pro labor side as villainous. And so there's all kinds of accusations that McParland is uh, corrupt and, you know, bribing witnesses or covering up murders. And honestly, we don't know if there's any truth to this or if this is just. Right hit jobs to smear, smear his character because he's on the anti-labor side of things. Here's a quote of an incident. And so his Wikipedia page is very, very well, it's not short, but there's just these all these enticing little stories that they don't go give any detail on. And it's almost like you'd have to go read the book that it's referencing to get the full story. But oh, ju- right. just, just to give you a taste, like here's one little whole section that says, in Columbus, Kansas, McParland discovered a conspiracy to dynamite Cherokee County's records vault to hide fraudulent mortgages. McParland helped convict train robber Oliver Curtis Perry. He helped apprehend a criminal who committed the largest bullion theft in U.S. history, 320000 in gold, from a San Francisco smelting company. Unquote. That's it. I'm like, wait, what? Tell me, what's that story? That's it. And then and yeah. the, the source cited is a 875-page book from 1997. All right. So I changed I changed our our plan. Instead of doing just a mini series on just this, we're actually gonna do an anthology series that's just the life and times Season one is the Molly McGuire's and James McParlin's the character the whole way. Yeah. Right. Yes. Of McParland, and it's just him going through the old west doing the anti union stuff and catching train robbers and Right, right. So again, I wish I really couldn't find much out there and I didn't want to buy and read this nine hundred page book. But it, it just feels like there's so much more. And like, yeah, I even wrote in my notes here that there's a whole other movie just in those three sentences. Yeah. So the so the book is called Big Trouble, A Murder in a Small Western Town Sets Off a Struggle for the Soul of America. So it's from, yes, from 1997. And it was so intensive. The author literally killed himself during his final revision. Oh, my gosh. And so I'm very curious to read this book. It's got pretty good reviews. And apparently it has lots of details about McParlin's role and all these things. And then the murder mentioned there is actually a 1905 assassination of a former Idaho governor. And McParlin gets involved in that investigation. Anyway, in the, in the 1880s, the Pickard Agency opens an office in Denver. And there's uh, corrupt management suspected. So they hire McParlin to go figure out what's going on with the Denver Agency. And he, you know, roots out the corruption there. And then they put him in charge of the Denver office. And then, like I said, and then... 20 years after that, he's involved with the investigation into this assassination of a former Idaho governor. And again, it seemed to be a labor thing. He was the, the Idaho governor had been like anti-labor, you know, a couple decades earlier. And then they basically rig his, if I read it right, they like rigged his fence gate to where when he opened his gate, boom, and it killed him. Oh, wow. Anyway, and then so McParlin gets accused here again of using shady tactics with the, with the witnesses, you know, like lying to witnesses to get them to turn on the co-conspirators and just all kinds of stuff there and then in in the subsequent trials of this assassination one of the lawyers that shows up is clarence darrow from uh oh 
from the Monkey Trials. Yes, the Snopes Monkey Trials. There's also a 2013 book uh, that doesn't have a lot of reviews. It, it almost looks like it might be self-published. I'm not sure, but it's a 2013 book called Pinkerton's Great Detective, The Amazing Life and Times of James McParland. So, again, not, nothing I've read really spoke to his character, but like you said, this guy would totally be the subject of an anthology series where each season is this whole in-depth investigation. Because you look at, I mean, the the, yeah. the assassination of the Idaho governor was 1905. That's 30 years after he's undercover in with the Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania. Anyway, there's a lot there. And without, again, writing a whole book or reading a whole book or writing, making a whole show about it, I, there's probably not much more to say for right now. But uh, there's a lot to McParland to kind of being this OG spy and it's interesting too just because this is a time where you know we say he made uh international notoriety or whatever after the molly mcguire thing but like there's no i mean photography was the thing but it's very easy to just go pretend right. to be someone else in a different part of the country and you can just completely blend exactly in. right and even if someone is like hey this this picture kind of looks like he was like oh yeah like wow that is weird that does kind of look like me <laughs> yep the end like but that's but it's you, you're not you, no one has social security numbers you know it's not <laughs> like no no one's got like driver's licenses no, the social media isn't a thing yeah it's, it is kind of crazy that like you can be like whoever you want to be the main witness the main witness in a in a trial that makes national news that gets 20 guys executed and then just go a couple states away right and you're a and brand new person. Just be someone else and do the same right. thing. Do this all over again. Just be an undercover cop. Right, right. <laughs> that is that's crazy. Yeah, so it's all, all, all kind of fascinating. And yeah, I didn't I didn't get into the coal industry itself. Obviously, the Pittsburgh Steelers are named when you think about the coal industry and the steel industry kind of being a major part of Western Pennsylvania. And we've talked about Rockefeller, and you get that that's also you know, it's into Iowa and Western Pennsylvania with the uh all the oil, the oil stuff there, and I guess when we get to, uh, do we have a "There Will Be Blood" on our timeline? Because that's is that in the same area? We or do. Where is "There Will Be Blood"? Where is that set? That's, no, "There Will Be Blood" is California, and that's Cal oh, it is California. That's oh, okay. California, and that's that's oil and not coal. Well, but I was thinking. So, but I, the reason I said that is uh, Rockefeller was uh, oil. Oh, oh, right, oil right, right, in yeah, Pennsylvania yeah, yeah. And, and and refinery in Ohio and stuff. So the last thing, did you have anything else on this story? I had one little tag thing to mention. No, but I have, I, I, I did do a, I looked into the 1876 presidential election. Oh, which I had that note. It has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with the movie, but just because this is where it happens on the timeline. That was the one other thing I was going to bring up as well. So yes, do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, this, like I said, this has, this has nothing to do with the, uh, the movie or the story. But because this is 1876 on the timeline, there was a presidential election that year, and it's actually one of the more interesting ones right, right. in American history. So Ulysses S. Grant was the incumbent, and he was considering running for a third term. Um, he would have been- he's very popular, right? He would have won easy? Yeah. Well- oh, okay. He decided against it because the economy was so bad. Oh, because of that 1873 downturn, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he was he was considering running for a third term, and he would have been the first person, would have been the first president to do so. To even run, even if he lost. Right, right. Right. Would have been, he decided against it. So instead, the Republicans, they put Rutherford B. Hayes on their ticket. He was a Civil War vet, so they thought that that was going to work for him. 
Um, and he wasn't Grant, so he didn't come with any of the baggage of, you know, the 1873 economic issues. Um, the Democrats thought that they had a good shot because even though Grant wasn't running, because his party, the Republicans, they were the ones that were in power during the during the panic of 1873. They thought they had a good shot of winning the election, and they ran a guy named Samuel Tilden. Both of those guys, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, they were both governors. I forget which states. I think one of them was the governor of Ohio, but I'm not sure. It's not important. Anyways, there was also a third a third party that had a guy running on the national ticket. Um, they were called the Greenback Party. They had like it was like an uh, economic platform um, that had to do with money. I'm not really sure the specifics, but it was like had something to do with inflation and paper money. But they called themselves the Greenback Party, and they ran a guy named Peter Cooper, who was actually the inventor of America's first steam locomotive, and he was 85 years old. Huh. So the oldest person to run for president, actually. Hang on, let me check and see how old Biden is. Because I was going to say, I was say definitely at the time, he was the oldest person. So Biden's only 80 years old. Yeah. Um, he'll be 81 this year. So even at time of recording. So the election takes place and the results are muddy. So by midnight on election night, Tilden had 184 of the 185 electoral votes needed to win the election. However, there was a lot of accusations being thrown around about, like, election interference. So the Democrats accused the Republicans of not counting Democratic votes for Tilden, and the Republicans accused Democrats of racist intimidation tactics to keep black people in the southern states from voting at all. And so... And both were probably true, right? (laughs) Maybe, probably. Yeah. Right. At the, back then, when it's literally just people writing who they want to be president on a piece of paper, and then someone has to physically count them. Right. The accountability was so much less. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's way easier to do election fraud in 1876. Right. So because of this, there are four states, uh, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Oregon, that all had disputed electoral votes, 20 in total. And that was basically going to decide who won. So there's a congressional commission that was set up to resolve this dispute and figure out who won. Uh, The commission has five senators, five uh, members of the House of Representatives, and five Supreme Court justices. So of the congressmen, so of the senators and and, uh, representatives, five are Republican, five are Democrat. And then of the Supreme Court justices, they had two Democrats and two Republicans, and then one independent named David Davis, who was a Supreme Court justice who was actually had just been elected by the Illinois House of Representatives or the Illinois legislature to the Senate. So they thought, and the Illinois legislature was controlled by the Democrats, they thought that if they elected David Davis, hey, we'll, we'll, you know, we're going to elect you. And they think, oh, well, if we do him this solid, he'll be sympathetic to us Mm. and he'll vote with the other, with the Democrats and help Tilden win the election. But their plan didn't work because as soon as he got elected, he said, oh, this is a conflict of interest. He recused himself. And so I, well, he excused himself from the commission and he resigned his position as a Supreme Court justice to go be a senator. Immediately. Huh. Resigned. And so they then had, he was replaced on the commission by a justice named Joseph Bradley, who was an independent, but kind of leaned towards the Republicans. And that's who he ended up voting for. So he broke the tie. 
and it was a, so it was an eight to eight to seven decision with the Republicans winning all twenty of those votes and gave the presidency to Hayes. Now the results of that were very contentious, and there were even people that were saying like this is going to be civil war two point because this is like a stolen election. Does that sound familiar to you at all, Rich? <laughs> so. In order to basically make the Democrats happy, the Republicans said, hey, don't fight us on this whole election thing. And in return, we'll take all the federal troops out of the South. Which is the Compromise of 1877. Yeah. So that's the Compromise of 1877 that leads to the end of Reconstruction. Officially, it's over because no more micromanaging Southern states. And actually... Not only do the, the troops leave, a lot of Republicans, like the the Republican people in the South, just leave the South and move move huh. to the North. And so it basically kind of then leaves the Southern states to their own devices. And then that's where you get like the KKK. James Crow laws yeah. and a, the KKK and a bunch of like, they basically just went back to the way things were before the Civil War, but just without slavery being officially legal. Uh. But yeah, huge huge spike in racist violence after 1877 in the south so this election is kind of interesting because it was only the second time that the person that won the popular or that got a plurality of popular vote of the popular vote did not win the election and uh, tilden won the popular vote by over 250,000 votes right what back then was three percent as i'm looking at it here right yeah which is which is crazy to think about and he this is actually the only election so far that someone actually won a majority of the popular right because he's 50.9% so it's not like he was under 50% right exactly so there have been five times so far that there have been that someone won a plurality so they got the biggest share of the popular vote but then didn't win the election but in in four of those the, the other four times that that's happened the person that won the biggest share, they still didn't get 50%. So like, you know, even going back to like the 2000 election or the 2020 election where it's like, oh, you know, Hillary Clinton, or 2016. you know, won, quote unquote, won the popular vote or 2016, not sorry, not 2020. You know, she won the popular vote. It's like, well, she didn't get 50 over 50%, right. but she did have the biggest, the biggest share of the po- the plurality right. of the popular right. vote. And beat her, right. She had the most of anybody. Right. Right. Uh, but in this one, Tilden had the biggest share, and he got over half. So over half of the country actually voted for Tilden, but then he ended up losing the election. But yeah, so that's that's the uh, the election of uh, 1876. And actually, it was brought to my attention, and most of this information came from a video by a YouTuber named Mr. Beat. Are you familiar with Mr. Beat? I don't think so. You should be. <laughs> he's a very he's a very awesome history YouTuber. Okay. He kind of he does a bunch of history videos, but he kind of specializes in presidential history. But he is a history teacher in Kansas. Oh, for real? Yeah, he lives in in eastern Kansas in uh, I think some somewhere near Lawrence, some small town up there. Huh. Um, I wonder if I have run across his uh, videos before and just didn't have it. Uh... Just given the subjects that we've covered, I would be surprised if you haven't at least seen one of his videos. Huh. I'm just clicking on his channel. It does not look familiar. Oh, okay. But he he's got he's got some great stuff. Hmm. But yeah, shout out shout out Mr. Beat. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, I uh <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna talk about that election as well. I well, we had made a note of it and uh I kind of forgot until like just this morning to even kind of uh, so you you had even looked at it uh, way more in depth than I had. 
and we kind of now can keep our streak of we've talked about every president now through Hayes, as Hayes is who followed Grant there, and we'll just try. Like I said, hopefully we can kind of keep up with uh, the order of the presidents as we go through here. Okay. So, yes, as we keep moving through the late 19th century here, join us next time as we talk about the 1939 John Ford-directed classic, Stagecoach. And a quick call to action if you want to help us out. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave us a review and leave us a five-star review, please. And or share this podcast with a friend you think might like it. And don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. <laughs>